6. The best that modern science can offer in this most important and exacting work of her life, if not, it is again the public school which alone can be depended upon to do the work, and we must get at least the beginning of it done before the girl escapes us at the close of her elementary school course. If you are impatient with a program which presupposes that practically all women will be homemakers and mothers, either trained or otherwise, let me remind you that the majority of women do marry, that most of these and many of the unmarried do become homemakers, and that it will be far safer for society to train the few less than 10% who never enter the career than to pursue the economically wasteful plan of assuming educationally that no women will be homemakers or that if they are they can successfully undertake the most complicated, difficult, and most important profession open to a woman with no preparation at all, or with only what they had unconsciously absorbed at home in the brief pauses of the education which did not educate them for life. The education for homemaking will never lose sight of the fact that girls must really be prepared for a double vocation, since it is a question whether or not they will become homemakers and they must at all events be prepared for the years intervening between school and home. On the contrary, the education which prepares the homemaker will exercise special care in training for those intervening years, or for life work if it should prove to be such, of all distinctly vocational training. It is only fair, however, that the homemaking training should come first, as a foundation for all later work, whether the girl thus trained ever presides over a home of her own or not. The training will have made her a broader woman and a better worker, with a finer understanding of the universal business of her sex. Footnotes, Chapter VIII The girl's inner life while we are occupied in teaching the girl the ways and means by which she is later to carry on the business of homemaking. We must not overlook the fact that, although ways and means are vitally necessary, it is after all the spirit of the girl which will supply the motive power to make the home machinery run. With this in view we must so plan the girl's training as to secure not only the concrete knowledge of doing things, but also the more abstract qualities which will equip her for her work. False ideals and ignorance of housekeeping processes are responsible for thousands of homekeeping failures, but lack of fairness, of good temper, patience, humor, courage, courtesy, stability, perseverance, and initiative must be held accountable for thousands more. For these qualities, then, the girl must be definitely and painstakingly trained. In other words, we must work for the highest type of woman, spiritually as well as industrially. It may seem that definite instruction in such abstract qualities as good temper or stability or fairness is difficult or perhaps impossible to secure, since, however, all the girl's intercourse with her kind affords daily opportunity for practice of these qualities. Instruction may easily accompany and become a part of her daily life. The lack of these qualities handicaps the girl even in her school life and shows there plainly the handicap that, unless help is given her, she will suffer for life. Her school work offers ample opportunity for the cultivation of patience and perseverance. Teachers must combat vigorously the give-up spirit and the troublesome changing her mind which leads the girl along a straight path from trying another essay subject or embroidery stitch as soon as difficulties present themselves to trying another husband when the first domestic cloud arises. Play hours as well as work hours are invaluable in teaching the girl the difficult art of getting along with the world. The educational value of games is largely found in their social training. Experience teaches that children require long and patient instruction to enable them to play games. They have to learn fairness, courtesy, good temper, honesty, kindness, sympathy, 
they have to learn to be good losers and to consider the fun of playing a better end than winning the game. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Play hours as well as work hours are invaluable in teaching the girl the difficult art of getting on with the world games must be carefully distinguished from the more general term play. All play not solitary has recognized social value, games, because the idea of contest is involved, have a special value of their own. Close observation of young children in their games, especially when unsupervised, shows us self-supreme, according to temperament. The child either pushes his way savagely to the goal or furtively seeks to win by cunning and craft. He must win, regardless of the process. How many of these unsupervised games end in I shot single quote and single quote T play? In angry bursts of tears, or even in blows? How many fail upon close scrutiny to show some less assertive child, who never wins, who is never chosen, who might better not be playing at all than never to have his turn? Illustration Copyright by Underwood and Underwood Hunter High School Girls Playing Hockey in Central Park, New York. The educational value of games lies in the fact that they teach fair play, self-control, and proper consideration of others during the individualistic period. Games must be for the satisfaction of individualistic desires. Teamwork must await a later development of child nature. But while each child may play to a win, his future welfare demands that his efforts be in harmony with certain principles. One. He must respect the rules of the game. 2. He must play fair. 3. He must control anger, jealousy, boastfulness, and other of the more elemental emotions. 4. He must consider the handicaps suffered by some players, and see that they get a square deal. Girls' games and boys' games at this period happily show little differentiation. Almost any game not prejudicial to health serves to call into action the moral forces we strive to cultivate. The game to a certain extent typifies the larger life the life of effort, contest, striving to win, self-control and proper consideration of others in the one must serve as a help in fitting for the other. Illustration, courtesy of L.A. Alderman drill work as well as games is beneficial to health and also teaches self-control. Teachers are often inclined to overlook or undervalue the training of girls in games. The fact is that girls especially need this training as the woman's sphere in present day life is widening. Men have always had contact with the world. Women have in times past had to content themselves with a single interest involving contest the social game. How far we may safely go in utilizing the game element that island the contest or competition element in school work is a question for thought. The rules of the game are less easy to enforce here, jealousies are harder to control, handicaps are more in evidence and less easy to make allowance for in contests, the discouragement of failure may have more serious results. The mere fact of class grouping involves a natural competition, healthful and beneficial and wisely preparatory for future living. More emphasis than this upon rivalry may produce feverish and in healthful conditions, far removed from the mental poise we desire for our girls. The school can give the girl few things finer than the ability to attack work quietly and yet with determination and a sense of power to meet and overcome obstacles. The school and the playground form the growing girl's community life. In them she must learn to practice community virtues, to shun community evils, and to accept community responsibilities. For her the school and the playground are society. Here she will take her first lessons in the pride of possessions, in the prestige accompanying them, in the struggle for social supremacy, in doubtful ideals brought from all sorts of doubtful sources. Here she will find exaggerated notions of style and its value, in pure English. 
whispered in cleanness in regard to sex matters, and surreptitious reading of forbidden books. Here also she will find worthier examples clean, pure thought, honesty and fair dealing, pride of achievement rather than of externals, fine ideals exemplified in the best homes, and no finer or more delicate task lies before teacher and mother than the guidance of the girl in her choice. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. A school playground. The school and the playground form the growing girl's community life illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. A model playground. The model playgrounds in the parks are doing much to aid the playground movement going to school is rightly considered an epic in the child's life. No longer confined to the narrow circle of home and family friends, the child may lose all the tiny beginnings of desired virtues in this larger life. Or, on the contrary, when the school recognizes and continues home training, or supplies what has not been given, these foundation virtues may be so applied to the old problems in new places as to form a foundation for the life conduct of the girl and the woman that is to be. Take the question of sex knowledge, so widely agitated of late. We cannot guard our girls against contact with some who will exert a harmful influence. We can only forearm them by natural, gradual information on the subject as their young minds reach out for knowledge, so that sex knowledge comes, as other knowledge comes without solemnity or sentimentality on the one hand or undue mystery and a hint of shame on the other. No course in sex hygiene can take the place of the surly gradual teaching, answering each question as it comes, in a perfectly natural way, and with due regard for the child's wonder at all of nature's marvelous processes. The little girl who knows presents no possibilities to the perverted mind which seeks to astonish and excite her, and if she knows because, my mother told me, the guard is as nearly perfect as can be devised. Upon this foundation the formal course in sex hygiene may be built. Such a course will then be a scientific summing up, with application to personal ideals and requirements. It can easily, safely, and wisely be deferred until the adolescent period. Teachers and mothers can find scarcely any field more worthy of their thoughtful concentration than the cultivation of good temper in the girls under their care. The number of marriages rendered failures. The number of homes totally wrecked, by sulking or nagging or outbursts of ill temper, can probably not be estimated. Neither can we count the number of innocent people in homes not apparently wrecked whose lives are rendered more or less unhappy by association with the woman of uncertain temper. Think of the families in which some undesirable trait of this sort seems to pass from generation to generation, accepted by each member calmly as an inheritance not to be thrown off. It's my disposition. One will tell you with a sigh. Mother was just the same. Surely the time to combat these undesirable traits is in childhood, and probably the first step is for the mother, who looks back to her mother as being just the same, to stop talking or thinking about inherited traits and at least to present an outward show of good temper for the child to see. Then there is the teacher, who is under a strain and who finds annoyances in every hour which tend to destroy her equanimity, her serenity, if she can accomplish it, will prove an excellent example. And little by little the mother and the teacher who had accomplished self-control for themselves may teach self-control and the beauties of good temper to the little girls who live in the atmosphere they create. Chapter IX The Adolescent Girl Adolescence The critical period of the training of the boy and girl presents a complexity of problems before which parents and teachers alike are often at a loss. The adolescent period, the growing up stage of the girl's life, is physically the time of rapid and important bodily changes, new cells. New tissue, new glands, are forming, new functions are being established, 
the whole nervous system is keyed to higher pitch than at any previous time. Excessive drain upon body or nerve force at this time must mean depletion either now or in the years of maturity. But, on the other hand, the keynote of the girl's aggressive mental life is awakening. Her whole nature calls out for a larger, fuller, more intense life. Home, school, society, dress, all take on new aspects under the transforming power of the new sex life stirring and perfecting itself within. The world is beckoning to the emerging woman, and her every instinct leads her to follow the beckoning hand. Now, if ever, the girl needs the influence and guidance of some wise and sympathetic woman friend, it may be let us hope it is her mother, or, failing that, her teacher, or, better than either alone, both mother and teacher working in sympathetic harmony. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Campfire Girls. Outdoor life is one of the best means of safeguarding the girl's health. The first care demanded for the maturing girl is the safeguarding of her health. School demands at this age are likely to be excessive under existing systems of instruction. In many ways the secondary school, in which we may assume our adolescent girl to be, merits the criticism constantly made, that it works its pupils too hard or, perhaps more accurately, that it works them too long. Nothing but the closest cooperation between parents and teachers can afford either of them the necessary data for working out this problem. It can never be anything but an individual problem, since girls will always differ whether school courses do so or not, and adjustment of one to the other must be made every time the combination is effected. Some schools content themselves with asking for a record of time spent on school work at home. Many parents nearly acquiesce in the girl's statement that she does or doesn't have to study tonight and the matter rests. Other schools and other parents go into the question with more or less detail, but usually quite independently of each other in the investigation. It is only very recently that anything like adequate knowledge of pupils has begun to be gathered and recorded to throw light upon the home study question. School girls naturally divide into fairly well-defined classes, the girl who is over-anxious or over-conscious about her work. The girl who intends to comply with rules but has no special anxiety about results. And the girl who habitually takes chances in evading the preparation of lessons. How many parents know at all definitely to which class their girl belongs? The same girls may be classified again with regard to activities outside the school. They may help at home much or little or not at all. They may have absorbing social interests or practically none. They may be in normal health or may already be nervous wrecks from causes over which the school has no control. There is no question about the value of definite information on all of these points gathered by home and school acting together for the best understanding of the child. The modern physician keeps a carefully tabulated record of his patient's history and condition. The school should do the same thing and should prescribe with due reference to such record. It frequently happens, however that the schoolgirl's health is menaced less by her hours of school work than by misuse of the remaining portion of the 24 hours. No mother has a right to accuse the school of breaking down her daughter's health unless she is duly careful that the girl has a proper amount of sleep, exercise in the open air, and hygienic clothing, and that her life outside the school is not of the sort that we describe in these days as strenuous. It is this strenuous life which our girls must be taught to avoid. Any daily or weekly program which is crowded with activities is a dangerous program for developing girlhood. The very atmosphere of many modern homes is charged with the spirit of haste, and parents scarcely realize that the daughter's time is too full, because their own is too full also. They have no time to stop and realize anything. 
A quiet home is an essential help in preserving a girl's health and well-being. Illustration, copyright by Underwood and Underwood a mountain camp. Good health is conserved by outdoor games and exercise it need scarcely be said that the children of a family should be troubled as little as possible with the worries of their elders. Parents are often unaware how much of the family burden their sons and daughters are secretly bearing, or how long sometimes they continue to struggle under the burden after it has mercifully slipped from father's or mother's shoulders. Good health means buoyancy, a springing to meet the future with a tingle of joy in facing the unknown. The adolescent period is essentially an unfolding time, in which probably for the first time choice seems to present itself in a large way in ordering the girl's life. In school she is confronted with a choice of studies or of courses. To make these choices she must look farther ahead and ask herself many questions as to the future. What is she to be? Nor is she loath to face this question. Some of the very happiest of the girls' dreams at this time are concerned with that problematical future. There was a day when girls dreamed only of husbands, children, and homes. Then, as the pendulum swung, they dreamed of careers, a hand in the world's work. Now they dream of either or both, or they halt confused by the wide outlook. But of one thing we may be sure our girl is dreaming, and she seldom tells her dreams. It is during this period in a girl's life that she is most likely to chafe at restraint, to picture a wonderful life outside her home environment, and to demand the opportunity to make her own choice. As she goes on through high school, she longs more and more for freedom. Quite unconscious of the fact that what seems freedom in her elder's island in reality, often farthest removed from that elusive condition, her imagination is taking wild flights in these days. Sometimes we catch fleeting glimpses of its often disordered fancies, although oftener we see only the most docile of exteriors standing guard over an inner self of which we do not dream. The wise mother and the wise teacher are they whose adolescent memories, longings, misapprehensions, and mistakes are not forgotten but are being sympathetically and understandingly searched for light in guiding the girls whose guardians they are. They recognize once and for all that normal girls are filled with what seem abnormal notions, desires, and ideals. They recall how little they used to know of life, and the pitfalls they barely escaped, if they did escape. Thus only can they keep close to the girl in spirit and help her as they once needed help. They respect her longing for freedom of choice and they teach her how to choose. It is of little use to attempt to clip the wings of the girl's imagination. However riotous, the wings are safely hidden from our profaning touch. Instead we must teach her to dream true dreams and to choose real things rather than shams. At this time the girl's life often seems to the casual observer to be bounded by her schoolroom walls. As a matter of fact, however, schoolwork appeals to her much less than it has probably done earlier or than it will do in her college days. Dress is becoming an absorbing subject. The boys, however little you may think it, are seldom far from her thoughts. Intimate friendship with another adolescent girl perhaps affords an outlet, beneficial or otherwise, for the crowding life which is too precious to bear the unsympathetic touch of the world of her elders, or perhaps the girl becomes solitary in her habits, living in a world of romance found in books or in her own dreams, impatient with the world about her, feeling sure she is misunderstood. What can home, school, and society in general do for the adolescent girl, that her awakening may be sweet and sane, that her futurefulness may not be impaired or her life embittered by wrong choice at the brink of womanhood. Any wise plan for the training of girls in their teens must include provision for, 1. Outdoor play and exercise. In the country this is much more easily accomplished, 
City problems bearing on this question are among the most acute of all concerning boys and girls. 2. Systematic attention to the work of the schoolroom. Thus the girl acquires habits of concentration and industry that she will need all her life. 3. Some manual work in kitchen, garden, sewing room, or workshop. Here the girl's natural tastes and inclination may be discovered and trained. 4. Food for the imagination, books, music, pictures, inspiring plays. The campfire girl's movement is valuable in its imaginative aspect. 5. Attention to dress. Laying the foundation for wise lifelong habits. 6. Healthful social intercourse under the best conditions with boys and with other girls, both at home and at school. Croquet, tennis, skating, offer fine opportunities for such intercourse. Parties, dancing, present more difficulties, but have their value under right conditions. Not all fun should include the boys. Athletic contests between girls do much to develop a neglected side of girl nature. 7. Companionship with her mother, or some other woman of experience. Nothing can quite take the place of this. The girl is sailing out upon an uncharted sea. She needs the help of someone who has sailed that way before. Illustration, a botanical laboratory in Portland, Oregon. Through systematic attention to the work of the schoolroom the girl acquires habits of concentration and industry aid. Preparation for marriage and motherhood. Much that the girl should know can come to her through no other medium than that indicated in the preceding paragraph confidential intercourse with the woman of mature years. For the sake of the girls who fail to find this woman elsewhere every school for adolescent girls should have on its faculty a woman who will mother its girls. 9. Acquaintance with the lives of some of the great women of history, as well as of some who have lived inspiring lives in the girl's own country and time. A long list of such women might be made. 10. Some unoccupied time. Our girl must not be permitted to acquire the bad habit of rushing through life. 11. Study of vocations and avocations for women. Avocations the work which serves as place should be wisely studied. And some avocation adopted by every girl. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. A quiet retreat. Every girl needs some unoccupied time in order that she may not acquire the habit of rushing part of this training girls everywhere in this country may get if the opportunities open to them are seized. The proportion of purely mental work and of handwork will vary according to the locality in which the girl finds herself. In general, however, such matters receive more consideration than the more complex ones of direct social bearing. How a girl shall dress, with whom and under what conditions she shall find her social life what she shall know of herself, of woman in general, of the opposite sex, what her relations with her mother shall be these things are more often than not left to chance or to the girl's untrained inclination. The dress question rests fundamentally upon the personal question, what do clothes mean to the girl, behind that we usually find what clothes mean to her mother, to her teachers, to the women who had a part in her social life. Instinct teaches the girl to adorn her person. Environment is largely responsible for the sort of adornment she will choose, to bring the matter at once to a practical basis. What standards shall we set up for our girls to see, to admire, and to adopt as their own? Well-dressed, may be interpreted to mean simply, or serviceably, or conspicuously, or becomingly, or fashionably, or cheaply, or appropriately, according to the standard of the person who uses the term. It would necessarily be impossible to establish a common standard for any considerable group of women, since individual conditions must govern individual choice. A wise standard for girls and their mothers, however, will conform to certain principles, 
even though the application of the principles be widely different, these principles may be expressed somewhat as follows, 1. Beauty in dress is expressed in line, color, and adaptation to personal appearance, not in expense, 2. Fitness depends upon the occasion and upon the relation of cost to the wearer's income, 3. Simplicity conduces to beauty, fitness, and to ease of upkeep, 4. Upkeep, including durability and cleansing possibilities, is as important a consideration in selecting clothes as in selecting buildings and automobiles. Freshness outranks elegance. 5. Individuality should be the keynote of expression in dress. Conformity to the foregoing principles in establishing a personal standard will of necessity prevent slavish imitation and the striving to reach some other woman's standard which bears again and again such bitter fruit. The erroneous notion fostered by thousands of American women that if you can only look like the women of some social set to which you aspire you are like them for all social purposes, is a fallacy, in spite of its general acceptance, we might as well expect blue eyes, straight noses, or number three shoes to form the basis of a social group, the mother or the teacher who bases her instruction in this matter on the assumption that pretty clothes of necessity breed vanity and all its attendant evils is merely sowing the seed of her influence upon stony ground when once the girl discovers her belief. Nature is telling the girl to make herself beautiful. It is not only useless but wrong to set ourselves against this instinct. Instead we must show her what beauty in clothes means, and how to attain it without paying for it more than she can afford, in money, in time, or in sacrifice of her spiritual self. The school does its share when it teaches the general theory of beauty, with practical illustration in study of line and color schemes. The individual teacher and the mother have to impart the far more delicate lessons concerning influence and cost mental, moral, and spiritual in other words, the psychology of clothes. Our girl must grow up fully cognizant of what her clothes cost, when she desires, as she doubtless will desire, silk petticoats, and an up-to-date hat, and high-heeled shoes, and an absurdly bruffled dress, and a wonderful array of ribbons. She must discover what each and every one of these things costs and whether it is worth the price. The high heels sometimes cost health, the conspicuous dress may cost the good opinion or the admiration of those who value modesty above style, the silk petticoat may be bought at the cost of mother's or father's sacrifice of something needed far more, the trimming on the head may have cost the life of a beautiful mother bird and the slow starvation of her nestlings. Nothing the girl wears costs money only. She must also learn that fine clothes are out of place on a girl whose body is not finely cared for, that money is better expended for quality than for show, and, most of all, that clothes are secondary matters. When all is said, wisdom and sympathy and tact are never more needed than in this sort of teaching. The principles of good dressing cannot be laid down baldly and coldly, like mathematical rules, for the guidance of a girl palpitating with youthful and beauty-loving instincts. The mother who says, merely, Certainly not. You don't need them. I never had silk stockings when I was a girl. Is failing to meet her obligations quite as much as the mother who allows her daughter to appear at school in a costume sweet only to some formal evening function. There are mothers of each of these sorts. The wise mother whose daughter has developed a sudden scorn for the stockings she has worn contentedly enough hitherto does not dismiss the subject in the certainly not way. However kindly spoken, she treats her daughter's request seriously asks a few questions, in the answers to which, the other girls, will probably figure largely, and talks it over, of course, there is the first cost to consider, the price of three or four pairs of silk stockings would give you a dozen pairs of fine cotton, 
Yes, I know there are cheaper silk ones to be had, but their quality is poor. We should scarcely want you to wear coarse, poorly made ones, and of course you know silk ones do not last so long. They are pretty, and pleasant to wear, and cool. I know. How would it do to have silk ones to wear with your new party dress, and keep on with the cotton ones for school? We don't want to be overdressed in business hours, you know. Then, it seems to me, it is a little hard on the really poor girls at school if the rest of you are inclined to overdress. They are so likely to get into the habit of spending their money for cheap imitations of what you other girls wear or if they are too sensible for that they are probably unhappy because they have to look different. Wouldn't it be kinder not to wear expensive things to school at all? The object is not so much to keep the girl from having unsuitable garments as to teach her to see all sides of the clothes question, to realize her responsibilities, and to learn to choose wisely for herself. It is highly desirable that mothers keep up their own standards of dress as they approach middle life and their daughters enter the adolescent period. Some women even make the mistake of dressing shabbily that they may gown their daughters resplendently. They are educating their daughters to a false standard and to a selfish life. Teachers also probably seldom realize how wide an influence they may exercise upon their adolescent girl pupils in the matter of dress. Many a girl forms her standard and her ideal from what her teacher wears. Teachers must accept their responsibility and make good use of the opportunities it gives them. It is approximately at the time of her awakening to the beautifying instinct that the girl begins to take a special interest in social matters. Here again she needs wise guidance, and usually more guidance and less direction than most girls get. The American mother is prone in social questions to trust her daughter too much, or not enough, and to train her very little. In many cases adolescent society centers about the school. There are the everyday walks and talks of the boys and girls, the games and meets and contests, with their attendant social features. Th.